What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Uh, Psalms 118, when you have a church, say amen. Amen. Y'all ready? Okay, let's go. His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He, had come, he has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvations are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does not valiantly. The right land, the right hand of the Lord exalts, the right hand of the Lord valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter into enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal, the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. That's right. Amen. Thank you, Sierra. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Park, and we are continuing on in our series that we're calling Christ in the Psalms. We find ourselves in Psalm 118. And before I go any further, I just want to uh, acknowledge something. Uh, I think I'm hoping, here's one of the lessons I'm hoping that we learn through the pandemic is what a blessing it is to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. And let's, let's not allow ourselves to kind of get complacent about this idea of 
gathering and singing praises uh, and hearing God's word read and praying together. So I, I just, man, I missed it so much in being in a room where I'm hearing other brothers and sisters sing praises to God. Uh, it's so encouraging. So I, I'm hoping that that's one of the lessons we learn. Now, uh, as we're in Psalm 118, you guys just heard it read. Uh, it's, it's pretty thick, right? There's a lot going on in Psalm 118. So here's what I want to do. I want to get started today by kind of boiling this psalm down to like its most basic level. So does everyone have Psalm 118 open if you have a Bible there? Be ready to go. Let's, let's boil this down. What is this psalm ultimately about? And I think verse 5 helps us get right to the center, the core of what this psalm is all about. So let's read that. Uh, verse 5 says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, the Lord answered me and set me free. Now let's, let's all read that together out loud. All right, here we go. Verse five, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Awesome. All right. So there's some key words in that verse that'll really get us to the center, the core of what Psalm 118 is all about. And the first key word is this. It's the key word distress. That the psalmist is writing about a time that he was distressed or in distress. Now that word can be translated in a number of different ways. Uh, it could be translated restricted. Uh, it, could, it could be translated this idea of feeling like you're in a narrow space. You're, you're tight, you're confined, you're constricted. Uh, the NIV translation translate that, translates that hard-pressed. I was hard-pressed. All right, so uh, the, the word that's actually translated distress here, the root of that word in Hebrew is the word that we get claustrophobia from, okay? So if you've ever felt claustrophobic, which I have at times in my life, uh, you get a little sense of what this psalmist felt, uh, the season that he was going through in his life that he's reminding himself of and us of here in Psalm 118. Uh, another key word is the word called. So distress is important. And then the other word is called. Notice that's in, in the past tense. He called out to the Lord. So what's going on is the psalmist is recounting an experience from the past. There was some time in the past where he felt uh, confined, hard-pressed, narrow, that he was in some kind of constricted place. And then the last part of the verse, these words are set free, set free. Now, those words could literally be translated this way, that he was brought out into an open space, all right? So from a tight, narrow, hard-pressed place, he was brought into an open space. So in other words, the psalmist is recounting a time in their life when they were in a tight spot, they were hard-pressed, felt like they were being crushed, and God set them free by bringing them out into open space. He, he removed the pressure and allowed them to breathe again. Now, at this point, how many of you are saying, hey, that's really great for the psalmist? Good for him. I'm glad that happened to him. But what about me, right? Some of you might find yourself in that kind of a spot right now where you feel pressed in, confined, almost feeling claustrophobic because of what's going on in your life. Maybe it's something you're going through at work. 
Maybe it's a particular relationship. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe you're questioning your career choice and you feel kind of backed into a corner with your career. Maybe you're a new parent, right? I've met a few of you today that are just brand new parents. Maybe you're just a parent in general, all right? And you feel pressed in. All right, there you go. You know what we're talking about. I have three, believe me, I know. Maybe someone is attacking you right now. And maybe it's not physical. Maybe it is, but maybe it's emotional. Maybe you're being slandered right now. Someone's trying to destroy your reputation. I'm going to talk a little bit about a situation in my life where I experienced that. Maybe you're experiencing a health crisis right now. But whatever the issue is, you feel like you're hard pressed. You feel like you're being crushed and you're calling out to God and you're asking for relief. You're asking for him to deliver you and give you some space and nothing's changing for you. At least as far as you can tell. I was in one of those situations a number of years ago. I used to be a lead pastor at a church in Southern California. And um, I was 32 when I started there. And the church was about 50 years old, all right? So that's a recipe for conflict, all right? Um, and so early on, I realized we, we were going to have a problem. The, the, the church had a ministry that was connected to it. It was a, a private Christian school that at that time, I think it had been around about 30 some years. So it'd been around a long time, had deep roots in the community. And I was starting to realize more and more that we probably were going to have to close the school down. Uh, it wasn't just me. Our whole leadership team was coming to that conclusion. Um, and I didn't want to do it. I knew the conflict that that was going to raise. I knew it was going to be a problem, not so much in the church, but mostly in the community because uh, within our church, there weren't that many people that were actually had their kids in the school. So I knew the issue was going to be more outside the church. And I just knew it was going to be this massive thing. It was going to be terrible conflict. It was going to bring a lot of pain. And I just didn't want to do it. But on, on, I'll just be honest with you. I actually tried to leave. All right? I was like, there's got to be another church I can go to before I have to make this decision and walk through all the conflict that's going to come from it. That's how bad I kind of knew it was going to be. I was like, God, get me out of this place. How many of you have ever been there, right? God, get me out of here. Whatever it takes, I don't want to go through this thing that I see coming my way. Well, God said, no, you're the person. I want you there. You and the rest of the leaders are going to have to walk through this. And so about five years in, we made the decision to shut the school down. And it was as bad and worse than we expected it to be. We actually, it's, it's crazy. You probably won't understand this. I was living in a smaller community. It's not like Denver. And so this was going to be a big deal in the community, okay? A school could close around. It's like, okay, some people may know, but it's not going to be like headlines in the newspaper, right? It's not going to be the Denver Post front line, all right? So for us, we knew it would be that way. So we prepared a press release, and we were ready, like a full-page press release. Reporter showed up the next day because word got out after we announced it. They took that press release and took one sentence out of the whole thing, took it out of context, and just made us look horrible in the community. We just, we looked like monsters. I mean, it, it got crazy. I was literally called the Antichrist. Okay, now, if you know me, you might think, well, maybe there's something to that. No, anyway, like, they, they, I was literally being called all these names. We, my wife and I would go into grocery stores or 
department stores or whatever, and, and we would see people who were kind of connected to the school, and they would see us and literally turn their backs on us and walk the other way. I remember one time I was in a, like a sporting goods store, and there was someone I knew was connected to the school, so I was going to like take initiative and kind of go over there and just say, hey, good to see you, haven't seen you for a while, something like that. I walk up to him, and she literally turns around, sees me, and jumps through the roof like Satan himself had shown there and like ran out the door, okay? And I am not exaggerating in any way. You, you would not believe the things that were said about us. And I'm in no way saying we did everything perfectly, all right? I'm not setting myself up. It was like for a year and a half, it was, it was hell, literally. It was horrible. And, th- and then I, honestly, here's the crazy thing. We could probably go back and run into some of the same people and they would treat us the same way. Like it's, it's crazy how people took it and received this, this news. And I remember over a period of about a year and a half, I was calling out to God. I was begging God, God, deliver me from this. We did what we thought was right for the, for the overall ministry. We made this decision. God, will you deliver us from this? So many times I called out to God and I felt like he could care less that he wasn't doing anything to help. So my question is, have you been there? Have you been in that kind of a place where you're begging God, move, I'm distressed, I'm crushed. Where are you? So the question is, what do we do when, not if, but when we find ourselves in those kind of life situations where we feel hard pressed, and like the weight of the world is bearing down on us. What do we do when we find ourselves in those places? Because it's gonna be, it's gonna come multiple times in your life. So what do we do? I would say this. The psalmist says that we're gonna need to remember some things. Remember, he's looking back. He's recounting an experience he went through. And we'll get into what that experience was in a minute. He's gonna say you need to remember a few things. And here's what we need to remember. Let me give you a few. Remember the steadfast love of God. Remember the steadfast love of God. Remember the power and presence of God. And remember the ultimate deliverance by God. Okay? Let's start with remember the steadfast love of God. Let's look back in Psalm 118. We'll read verses 1 through 4 and then jump down to 28 and 29. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Look down to verse 28. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. The word extol is I will brag. I will boast to you and about you. I'm going to boast about you, God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Remember the steadfast love of God. Five times the psalmist repeats The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Now, what does that mean? What is steadfast love? It means that if you've put your faith 
and trust in Jesus Christ to bring you into a right relationship with God, you can know for a fact, you can know that for a fact that his love towards you will never change. In the midst of the distress and the hard time you're going through, you can know that his love towards you has not changed. He'll never love you any more. He'll never love you any less than he does right now in Christ. Why? Why doesn't it change? It's because his love for you is steadfast, meaning it can't change. He's loyal to you. His love is a covenantal promise to you. Even when we are unfaithful, even when we're unfaithful, he remains faithful because his love for us and his, and here's the good news, his love for us and his acceptance of us is not based on our performance. Isn't that good news? I mean, I'm just looking over the last week. Yeah, you can clap about that. That's, that's good news. That his love toward us and for us is not based on our performance. Just think over the last couple of days in your life. Right? I think about my own life. Last few days, last week, I am so thankful that his love is steadfast and that it's not based on my performance. Well, what is it based on? Well, here's the good news. It's based on the perfect obedience and performance of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. In his life, in his substitutionary death on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. In Ephesians 2, you can just listen or you can turn there. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5, and then verses 8 through 9. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice that. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice, even when we were dead in our trespasses. You see that? It's not based on our performance. Why? Because we were dead spiritually. There's no performance if you're dead, right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he loved us, and notice the rest of it, and made us alive together with Christ. That's referring to our salvation. We were dead spiritually, and in Christ, he made us alive. And notice, it was all his love that motivated that. And it wasn't based on our performance. Again, because we were dead spiritually. We were separated from him. That's why verses 8 and 9 go on to say, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not by works, not by religion, not by morality. It's faith in the performance of Jesus. And this is, notice, not your own doing right? It's a gift of God, not a result of works. It's not based on your performance. It's so that no one can boast. So remember, if you find yourself doubting God's love for you right now because of all that you're going through, you're like, God cannot love me and allow me to go through what I'm going through. Then remember what the apostle John said, 1 John 4.10, in this is love. In other words, this is how you know what love is. It's not, you know, based on is everything going great in your life. That doesn't mean he loves. That's not necessarily love. 
This is what love is. This is what love is. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Well, how do we know that he loved us? Keep going. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's how you know what love is. And that's how you can know and trust that right in the middle of whatever distress you're going through, whatever hardship you're going through, whatever pain you're in right now, you can know that doesn't mean that he doesn't love you because 2,000 years ago, God came in the flesh and became the propitiation for our sins. Now, that word propitiation is huge. It's huge. Do you know what it means? The word propitiation means this, is that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, took the wrath and punishment that we deserve for our sins on himself. If you want to be theologically accurate, God poured out his own wrath on himself for us so that we could be set free, so that we could be delivered. That's how you know God loves you. And here's something that we often miss while we're going through trials and suffering in life. We'll miss this. The very fact that we are going through trials is one of the evidences of God's love. <laughs> now, hold on, because that sounds crazy. I appreciate my sister back there cheering me on, but I'm just saying, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? It sounds crazy. The fact that we go through trials or suffering is one of the evidences of God's love. Because that, I mean, for Christians, that's hard enough to hear. And you might be here and you're not a believer and you're going, man, if that's the God we're singing to, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense. So, so let me show you where the psalmist talks about that. Look at verse 18 in Psalm 118. He says, the Lord has disciplined me severely but he has not given me over to death. Notice that he has not given me over to death. He disciplined me severely. I was hard pressed. I was feeling crushed. My enemies were coming all around me. Like we heard it read earlier. They were buzzing like bees around me. Incredible imagery, by the way. But he did not give me over to death. He wasn't trying to destroy him. It wasn't because God was angry with him. It wasn't God being vindictive towards him. Apparently, what God was doing here in this situation was using that crushing experience to correct him and bring him into a closer relationship with him. God was disciplining him because he loved him and wanted him to experience life as God designed it to be lived. This is also what God's, look, God's love looks like correction. Because so often in our lives, what we do is, man, when things are going great and everybody's happy and there's no health problems, you got money in the bank, work's going great, relationships are good. We say, oh man, look at how God loves me. But it's rare when we go through trials and suffering and difficulties, we say, oh, this is also God loving me. Correction is one of the ways he loves us. And again, if you're going, man, that's crazy. Are you making this up? I'm not making this up. I wouldn't make it up, all right? So, so if you want to, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 12, towards the end of the New Testament, all the way towards the back of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 12. 
I'm going to give you some verses to read on your own sometimes. So Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 11. I'm just going to read a couple of them. Look at verse 6. And this is good news for those of you who are maybe under God's disciplining hand right now. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. Wow. Like those of you who are parents in the room, you get that, right? You love your kids, so you discipline your kids. And the author of Hebrews will go on and just talk about that. He's like, listen, you as human imperfect parents understand this. How much more does God do this? But he's going to do it perfectly, all right? I'm going to be honest. As a parent, I haven't always disciplined in love. Every once in a while, there's been some anger there. Amen, parents? Are you with me? Oh, I'm not the only one. Come on. Come on, parents. Those of you who don't have your own kids, you think back to your parents, you're like, yeah, I know they were picked off at me when they disciplined me. That, that's true, right? But God is saying, listen, I, that's human parents. You get this, and you don't always do this perfectly, but I obviously understand this, and I will always do it perfectly. I will always do it in holiness. I will always do it in love, and it's never going to be in anger towards you. How can you know that God is never angry when he's disciplining you or allowing trials in your life? Because all of his anger, all of his wrath, all of his judgment was poured out on Jesus on the cross for you. He emptied his wrath towards you on Christ. So you're free from his wrath. You're free from his anger. You're free from his judgment. Now is being done in love. Love. He's doing it because he loves you. Now hear this. Let me nuance this a little bit. This doesn't mean that every trial you go through is necessarily God correcting you for a particular sin. Okay, so you're going through a trial, don't be worried. Oh no, how did I sin? There's nothing wrong with asking that question, but it's not necessarily one-to-one -one correlation, right? Because we see all through the Bible that God uses trials in our life to transform us more and more into his image and to lead us into the life that is truly life. So back to that situation I was talking about where we shut the school down and we took a lot of flack and it was hard. Um, if you had talked to me before, that situation, I would have said, man, I don't really care what people think about me. Like as a pastor, I'm gonna open up God's word, I'm gonna teach it and preach it, I'm gonna say everything that it says, and I know people won't always like it, but I don't care, I'm doing it for God, right? Or, you know, I don't care if people don't like my decisions, I'm doing it for God. But as soon as I made that decision with our leadership team, and there were so many people against us what I realized in my life is I had made an idol out of what people thought about me. My identity was shaped and formed by what people thought about me, by success in ministry. And, and like I could look back and go, man, when, when, in, when in church things were going well and all the numbers were going up and to the right, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like even in church world, we talk this way, it's crazy. When that was happening, I felt great. All right, God loves me. Things are good. When things were down, I was like, oh man, what did we do wrong? But man, what I realized is I, because I was crushed. I was crushed by what people were saying about me. Why? Because my identity 
had, I had allowed my identity to be shaped by people's opinions of me. And so what God was doing in his love and in his mercy was destroying that idol in my life so that I could be set free to be who God created me to be and not enslaved about worry and fear and people's opinions. That was what his discipline did for me in that situation. And I'm not saying I got that totally wired, so I'm, I'm still working on that. I'm still working on that. But that's what God was doing in my life. So remember, when you go through one of those seasons in your life, when it feels like everything and everyone is against you, remember God's steadfast love for you. Amen? All right, I got to fly. I got to fly. Sorry. I spent a lot of time on that one. Next one, remember God's power and presence. Remember God's power and presence. See, the easiest thing to do when you are in a tough season, when it feels like the whole world's against you, the easiest thing to do is forget that God is all-powerful. That person isn't that situation isn't, that disease is not, but God is. God is all-powerful. And that all-powerful God is on your side. He is for you and he is with you in the midst of the trial. Notice verses six through 16. I'm just gonna read them quickly. Listen again. Let God's word just kind of wash over you. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Ultimately, what can people do to you when God is on your side? That could actually be translated, God's on your side. Could be translated, God is with you. God is with me. Seven, the Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now notice the situation and how he felt in the situation he was in. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off or I pushed them back. They surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. Notice how the intensity builds. They surround me. Now they're on every side. Verse 11, they surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I pushed them back or I cut them off. 12, they surrounded me like bees. Incredible imagery. They went out like fire among thorns. In other words, consuming everything. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard. Now, they're, now it's physical. They're, they're actually literally touching me. They pushed, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. God, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. Notice that right hand, that's, the, uh, that's power, that's authority. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So the question for us today is who are we trusting in? What are we trusting in? When all hell breaks loose in our life, when it seems like the world is caving in on us, when everything seems like everyone's turning against us, everything's going wrong, who or what are we trusting in to deliver us? Who or what is it? Notice, the question is not, will we turn to or trust in something or someone? That's not the question. We will. 
We are going to turn to something or someone to trust in when, when everything's falling apart. The question is, who will it be? What will it be? Will it be God or a substance? Will it be God or a distraction? And I think that's a big one for us coming out of COVID. We became masters of distraction, didn't we? Like how many series on Netflix did we burn through, right? Think about it, in COVID, what else was there to do? There you go. Hey, that was a rhetorical question, so good job, all right. <laughs> Will it be God or putting our hope in politicians? Will it be God or will it be money? Will it be God or our career? Who or what are we going to turn to? Notice verses 8 and 9 again. I think this is important. Look at verses 8 and 9. The psalmist said, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Princes there would represent just people who have kind of mere human earthly power. Do we believe that? It's better to take refuge in God than people or other things. Do we, do we believe that? So how can we tell whether or not we really believe it? Here's, here's one way. How consistently do we do what the psalmist did in verse 5? Notice what he did in verse 5. Out of my distress, what? I called on the Lord. When I was being pressed in, when I felt claustrophobic because the world was closing in on me, trials, were difficulties, challenges, I called on the Lord. It doesn't say I ran to alcohol. It doesn't say I buried myself in work. It says I called on the Lord. I prayed to God. Why did he do that? Because he knew that God alone is all powerful. And that the Lord is Lord over every situation, every person, every circumstance. He knew that there was nothing too big or too challenging for God. And so because he believed that, he took refuge in the Lord through prayer. So our prayer lives really are the best indicators as to how much we believe in the power of God to actually change things. Our prayer lives are really the best indicator of whether or not we take our refuge in the Lord. If we really believe he's all powerful, then prayer is going to have a prominent place in our lives. And here's the deal. Here's why when we are in trials and difficulties and we're feeling pressed in and we don't run to God in prayer and we don't take refuge in him, we don't do it then because we're not doing it in life when things are going well. See, when it's a natural habit of your life, it's going to be much more natural to do it when hard times hit. Or when hard times hit, you're kind of like, oh, no, I better pray. But you don't stay there. You pray once or something, and then you kind of try and find refuge somewhere else. So we need to remember 
Remember the steadfast love of God. Remember the power and presence of God. And then lastly, remember God's ultimate deliverance. Remember his ultimate deliverance. Verses 19 through 27, we won't get it. There's so much there. I wish we had time to do it, but there's so much. Go back, read it, meditate on it. What you see in verses 19 through 27 is the psalmist and a, a group of people, probably those who were delivered with him. After their deliverance, they want to go back to Jerusalem. They want to go back to the temple. They want to offer praises to God. They want to offer their sacrifices to the Lord. Why? Because they're grateful. They're not doing it to earn God's favor. They're doing it because they've already received God's favor. It's a response to understanding how God has loved you and how God has protected you and all that God has done for you. Like the natural response of that, the overflow of that in your life is, I want to worship this God who is this good and this loving when I'm not good and not faithful towards him. That's what I want to do. And as you keep reading, you start realizing, oh man, this whole thing is about Jesus. You see allusions to Jesus all the way through these verses. And let me just give you a few. Verse 26. All of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at verse 26, the first part. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All four gospel writers talk about that being proclaimed over Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem the last week of his life. The, the, the gospel writers were like, yeah, that deliverance that was talked about in Psalm 118 is ultimately about Jesus. Another one, verses 22 to 23. Amazing line. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. All right. Awesome line in the Bible. Also a line in a Bob Marley song. Pretty cool. Anyway, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus used this exact same language in describing himself in his parable of the tenants. Remember that parable? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he was saying, I'm the stone that the builders rejected. I'm the one becoming the cornerstone. He showed them that even though he was rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, it was all part of God's plan to bring salvation and deliverance for his people. Verse 27, it says, the Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. John in his gospel, chapter one, verses four and 14, in him, referring to Jesus, was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then last allusion to Jesus here, verse 27, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. John in his epistle, 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. 
Jesus' sacrifice for us at the cross and his resurrection three days later was, was what made possible our eternal deliverance. So the psalmist is talking about temporal, temporary deliverance as by God's spirit, he was ultimately pointing to eternal deliverance found in Christ in his work for us 2,000 years ago. Now, let's bring this all together. Back Psalm 113, that was the beginning of what was known as the Passover Psalms. Psalm 113 to 118 would be sung before 13 and 14 would be, 113, 114 would be sung before the Passover meal. And then the rest up to 18 would be sung after the Passover meal. So the very last thing that Jesus sang with his disciples was Psalm 118, where he was talking about being the stone that was rejected, who has now become the cornerstone. He was the one festal sacrifice that was coming to be offered, not just for temporary deliverance, but for eternal deliverance. Imagine what Jesus must have felt as he was washing the feet of his disciples who were just about to betray him. And he did all of that for us so that yes, when we're in our trials, when we're in our difficulties, we can rest and know that he loves us. But even more importantly, so that one day when we stand before God, we can know that we're good because we're in the one whose performance was perfect for us. So how does that help us how does knowing all that help us? Here's how. Because we are reminded that the trials and the hurts and the pains and the difficulties and the misunderstandings and the sickness do not have the final word. They're not the end of the story. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. He's conquered Satan and sin and death. And so will you if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. His victory is your victory. His future is your future. This life is just a blip on the radar of eternity. A new heavens and a new earth are on the way where there will be no more hurt, no more pain, no more trials forever. So you can rest today in the victory that is yours in Jesus and I would just say, if you've not yet trusted in him, would you do it today? Would you believe that what you've heard today is true? Would you believe that God is really that good? And he's proved it in history. Believe it today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity you've given us to gather, hear your word read. be able to sing to you, to hear your word proclaimed. Now, God, I just ask that you give us ears to hear what we needed to hear today. There are some in this room who are going through a really intense time, a really intense trial right now. They're discouraged. They're frustrated. Some of them are doubting your love for them. God, would you meet them right where they are? Build up their faith. Remind them that you've already proven your love for them over and over and over again. God, give them the faith to trust you. Lord, help them to learn what they need to learn in the midst of this. 
so that they're more conformed to your image. And then God, I would ask that those who are in the room who do not yet believe in you, they're maybe just here checking this whole church thing out. God, would you meet them right where they are? Give them faith to believe. God, I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.